Morning, everybody. Uh, we are studying together Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and over the last two weeks, we've looked at a section of the sermon that deals with, um, with the so-called righteous things, the practices of the righteous. And as we have seen, Jesus speaks on the three pillars of Judaism, three things that first-century Jews took very, very seriously as the foundational behaviors of their religion, giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. Uh, there is a summary statement. And the summary statement is found at the beginning of the section, chapter 6, verse 1, which, which says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And uh, as we've already seen when we looked uh, at giving to the needy and then when we looked at prayer, what we've seen is that the primary lesson is to avoid hypocrisy. Therefore, our three texts, one on giving in secret, one on private prayer, and another on fasting in disguise, they are not primarily concerned with giving, praying, and fasting. They are, to be sure, concerned with those topics, but only in a secondary way. The primary lesson is to avoid the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, uh, the word hypocrisy uh, nowadays means something a little bit different, slightly different to what it means in the Bible. Um, in current usage, hypocrisy is something like failing to live up to your own declared principles. So then if, for example, I publicly denounce theft and stealing as immoral, but cheat on my tax return, that makes me a hypocrite whether or not I'm aware of the discrepancy between my words and my actions. In that sense, then, actually, we're all hypocrites, uh, for we all, as Christians, regularly talk about principles and ideals such as loving one another, we, we regularly talk about principles and ideals that we take seriously and we aspire to, but fail to live up to. Sometimes in little ways, sometimes in big ways, sometimes glaringly, sometimes unwittingly, sometimes consciously. As is regularly noted, it's regularly said that churches are full of hypocrites. To which, of course, the obvious answer is, Yes, but there's always room for one more. <laughs> when Jesus speaks on hypocrisy, he has something slightly different in mind. The hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees is that they acted as though they were living for the glory and honor of God alone, while actually they were living for human approval, for their own glory and honor. That's what motivated them, was approval from others. In their religious observances, they, they, they were therefore essentially actors on a stage, playing a role, pretending, aping devotion. So therefore, basically, look, in considering prayer and fasting and giving, um, that's great, but we do well. The take-home message is, is, is to examine ourselves, to look for hypocrisy in any and in every area of our lives that play-acting that Jesus is describing. 
Um, I, um, I came to faith uh, in Christ in uh, my mid-twenties in a Christian culture. Actually, it was uh, this culture. It was this church. Uh, I more or less came to faith in Christ, broadly speaking, through the ministry of this church uh, in the early 90s. And the Christian culture that I encountered from a non-church background, I encountered this Christian culture that was pretty disinhibited and demonstrative when it came to worship and singing and times of prayer, praise and worship. Hands in the air, eyes closed, clapping, harmonizing, swaying, occasionally falling backwards, particularly if somebody did that to you, um, praying in tongues, singing in tongues, even dancing. And at that time, um, St. Barnabas, as a church, was widely derided as a happy, clappy church, and therefore profoundly suspicious. Such enthusiasm was disgusting to some, and embarrassing and off-putting to others. Now, of course, uh, the good side of that phenomenon is that such worship is plainly biblical. If we take the Psalms as our guide and many other passages too in the Old and New Testament, people worshipping God in the power of the Holy Spirit, lost in wonder, praise and adoration, utterly unselfconscious in their consciousness of the glory of God, this is precisely what we want all of the time. Amen and amen, may, may, may it be. But the flip side of that same coin is the terrible, terrible danger of hypocrisy. That's what Jesus is talking about. Well, actually, the, the hypocrisy that, that, that when I stick my hands in the air and I'm swaying and I've got my eyes closed, I'm profoundly self-conscious. And actually, what I'm saying to those around me is, look at how much I love Jesus. And look at how super spiro I am. Yeah, baby, I'm way up there. I'm one of Jesus' special people. Or actually, we could just fall into that corporately, collectively. You know, that actually what we're aware of, that the, the atmosphere is, hey, look, look, look at us. We're, we're not just some nominal Christian place. This, this is, this is the, welcome because you've come to the happening spiritual place. And it all becomes a terrible show. And, and there is no serious doubt at all that this is precisely what has happened and is happening in large numbers of charismatic and Pentecostal churches. It's all a show. And therefore, by definition, hypocritical. Now, they wouldn't by any means be the only traditions or congregations where there's hypocrisy. <laughs> by, by no means. It's just that my point is, in giving three weeks to giving and praying and fasting, we need to bear in mind that the chief challenge is to avoid the yeast of the Pharisees, to be on guard against the terrible temptation of hypocrisy in every area of our lives. Jesus warns us. It's a clear and present danger to effective discipleship. But the counterweight to that warning is a great encouragement. When we undertake any such spiritual discipline, and the answer is not to undertake such spiritual disciplines, no, but, the, but if, we are, if we are able to, if we are prepared to, if we desire to do our spiritual disciplines in a way that attracts no commendation or attention or notice from a human audience, then our Father in heaven, who sees what is hidden and what is done in secret, 
he will reward us. And so we come to today's text, um, which we've just read, which deals with fasting. Now, fasting was an important part of first century Jewish culture and religious practice. Jesus assumes here that the disciples knew what fasting was, they knew how to fast, and Jesus assumes they knew the purpose of fasting, how it might be that God might want to reward somebody for fasting. And in the ancient world, beyond Judaism, there was a common cultural heritage of fasting. Fasting was something that that many people did, not just the Jews. But really, of of all of the different people groups all around the ancient Mediterranean, the Near East, the Middle East, all of those different people groups, fasting was particularly characteristic of the Jews. Um, Now, in contrast to their age, in our age, um, there's no real contemporary cultural meaning or currency for fasting. Um, By and large... Fasting, particularly in Australia, is something that most people know nothing about. Um, Of course, lots of people around the world fast. Uh, Muslims fast regularly, Ramadan, etc. But here in Australia, lots of people essentially just don't know what fasting is. So let's start by talking about how Jesus' disciples may have thought about fasting in their day. What did they already know? Well, to begin with, uh, Jews practiced both corporate, public fasts as well as private, individual fasts. Corporate, public fasts were a part of a small number of national holidays, annual observances such as Jewish New Year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Uh, Many such fasts involved essentially abstaining from food and drink all day until sunset and then a large shared meal together. Likewise, individual fasts may have been a day of abstaining from food, but breaking the fast at sunset with a meal. There are many, many references to both corporate and individual fasts in the Old Testament. Corporate fasts, in addition to the, to the annual ones, which are part of the calendar, corporate fasts were sometimes called when the nation was in great danger in the face of possible disaster or catastrophe. As for individual fasts, David, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and Mordecai, they're all recorded as fasting. Moses went without food or water for 40 days in the presence of the Lord on top of Mount Sinai. Sometimes the connection is with deep repentance. It's with confessing sin, as in the Daniel reading uh, this morning. Uh, he is profoundly aware of the, of, of the historic evil of his nation, and he is praying and fasting in sackcloth and ashes, confessing before the Lord. Sometimes the connection is with desperate need. Uh, Esther and Mordecai and all of the Jewish people of the province fast and pray um, because they're in danger from, from genocide. Um, They're asking God to save them. And sometimes fasting is in preparation. It's a company's special prayer before special endeavor. So, for example, Nehemiah calls his people to fast and pray, and he fasts and prays before setting back to Jerusalem from Babylon. Special prayer accompanied by fasting 
um, before special endeavor. And uh, with respect to individual fasts, sometimes they're recorded as being for only a day, such as when David and his men fasted for a day in mourning for King Saul and his son Jonathan, who'd just been killed that day. They fasted until evening. And sometimes fasts are much longer, such as when King David prayed for his baby son, born to himself in Bathsheba, David uh, lying in sackcloth and ashes for seven days without food, weeping and mourning and praying and fasting. One of the things that you'll pick up on, you might have noticed it in Psalm 69 this morning and also in our Daniel reading, one of the things you may have noticed is that fasting in the Old Testament is always accompanied by many other outward and highly visible signs of Devotion, of seriousness, of contrition, of repentance, earnestness. Signs such as weeping, crying out, wearing sackcloth, torn clothing, putting ash on your head, abstaining from self-care. Don't, you don't wash, you don't do your hair, you don't apply oils, lotions, or ointments. The fasting person, and this is half the point, the fasting person, therefore, would be obvious in their grief and sorrow. So... That's the picture that we get in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, in contrast, there are not many mentions of fasting. Jesus, of course, fasted for 40 days and 40 nights after his baptism, but before the start of his public ministry. Um, Special prayer and fasting um, before special endeavor. Um, Later, once, uh, Jesus was asked why it was that his disciples did not fast in contrast to the disciples of John the Baptist and the the disciples of the Pharisees, they fasted regularly. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's still with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast. And from this brief mention, we can see that Jesus does expect his disciples to fast, but fasting cannot, ought not, be linked with celebration. That's not the association. It's, it's deep repentance. It's confession or desperate need or special endeavor. Um, Luke's gospel records Jesus' uh, um, parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, in which the Pharisee rather famously boasts, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. And uh, from From this, it has been widely assumed that Pharisees routinely fasted twice a week, traditionally on Monday and Thursday. But actually, historically, this is far from certain. Rather, the practice that this fictional Pharisee is speaking of may have marked him out as a very special group of Pharisees who were set apart and whose job it was to pray for rain. If their efforts failed to to procure rain by a certain date, then the entire nation would be called upon to fast and pray. And such individuals, uh, the the godliest of the godly, uh, these frontline intercessors in the defense of the nation against drought and starvation, such men were deeply respected for their obvious piety and for their sacrifice for the sake of others. And so with respect to our fictional Pharisee praying in the temple, 
uh, in Jesus' parable, the fact that he fasted twice a week and that everybody knew it obviously bought him serious authority with the crowd. And actually, the parable's twist depends upon that kudos because um, uh, such a person was assumed to be the model of righteousness. Um, Also in the Gospel of Luke, we meet Anna early on, a prophet to whom Jesus is introduced as an infant. Uh, Anna is is a prophet, and Luke says about her, quote, she was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after marriage, and then she was a widow until she was 84. Or possibly then she um, uh, uh, was a widow for another 84 years. Uh, Luke says she never left the temple but worshipped day and night, fasting and praying. And uh, the only other mentions of fasting in the New Testament appear in the book of Acts, chapters 13 and 14, and describe how the early church fasted and prayed before sending off Barnabas and Saul as apostles to their work of evangelism and church planting. Special prayer before special endeavor. Well, returning to our text today, we now understand how people who were fasting would have practiced that discipline in such a way as to be intentionally conspicuous, weeping, covering their face, wearing um, an intentional frown to demonstrate remorse, pain, sorrow, contrition for sin, for wrongdoing, etc., not washing their faces, not applying the usual lotions, all as a demonstration of self-denial, possibly wearing sackcloth or ripped clothing. But in contrast to that substantial Old Testament tradition, um, Jesus astonishingly teaches his disciples to jettison every way in which fasting might be observed by others. Such is the danger of hypocrisy, such is the danger of being led into a lifestyle wherein we do things essentially to receive praise and recognition and honor from others for our own sake, such is that danger that actually um, um, it's worth jettisoning all those external things in order that we might be sure that we're living wholeheartedly committed to the glory and honor of God alone and seeing that expressed in kingdom change in ourselves and in others. Um, So what's important uh, is that we do not make it obvious when we are fasting in order to be observed. Now, in actual fact, when you fast, uh, it is hard to make it completely hidden especially if you fast for several days, it will inevitably become obvious to others that you are fasting. Uh, When, for example, they put food in front of you um, or ask you to have lunch or whatever, uh, um, it is pretty much impossible to make it a complete secret. And, of course, it's not hypocritical to look sad when you are fasting if you are sad. Arguably, if you looked happy when you were fasting, but you were sad, that would be hypocritical. Um, So uh, once again, we see that as in the past two sermons, it isn't so much that Jesus is commanding us to secrecy, but rather that he is warning us against hypocrisy 
Jesus encourages us to fast secretly, or at least discreetly, so that it is obvious only to our Father in heaven that we are fasting, and our Father, who is unseen and sees what is done in secret, he will reward us. And uh, that might uh, prompt the question, uh, what kind of reward? Um, Good question. Um, Well, um, uh, in the economy of heaven, self-denial, that is to say, sacrifice, buys authority. Christians who fast regularly, fast regularly because they have become convinced, indeed I would say deeply convinced, that their prayers somehow have much greater authority if their prayers are accompanied by a fast of some description. It is a way of exercising additional authority in the spiritual realms, but that's true if and only if such prayers start with and begin with our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is about your glory and your will, and my first act is to surrender to you. I'm surrendering my will. Uh, fasting is not a way of getting God to agree to something that we, we really want, but figure he might yet to be persuaded about. Uh, um, uh, fasting is not a way to twist God's arm. The, the, the Bible word for that is idolatry. And our Father, who is unseen and who sees what is said and done in secret, he will reward us with bought authority with God. Uh, That turn of phrase might make us feel very uncomfortable. This idea of buying and selling in the presence of God, that we've bought authority with God. But again, we remember, this is about begging God to do more of what he wants to do. Not more of what we want him to do, unless, praise God, those two things turn out to be exactly the same. Which is likely, actually, with people who are filled in power with the Holy Spirit, the new covenant people of God. So that's the point. Uh, Fasting somehow lends our prayers more authority. It just does. Very confrontingly for Jewish people, the fasting Pharisee did not go home right with God. His fasting bought him authority with people, but it could not justify him before God. He goes home unforgiving, unforgiven, not belonging. Um, the tax collector, and this of course is the great scandal to a Jewish audience, the tax collector, the most despised of the despised, he goes home right with God, justified. And we are right with God. We are his children. And children don't have to buy or sell anything. Their their father just gives them all that they need. And mother, parents, um, we are are God's children. 
We are right with God. We are justified when we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. Yet and nevertheless, Jesus assumes that we will fast. If um, you've not ever fasted before, you might be wondering, how should I fast? Um, How can I make a start in this? Um, A general answer would be, uh, pray and then take little baby steps. Uh, You might want to start fasting and learning about fasting by just simply skipping one meal. Either, say, breakfast or lunch or dinner. And perhaps start by skipping the meal that is easiest for you to skip. Some people actually find it easy to skip breakfast. Other people find it easy to skip lunch. So start, start there where it's easiest. Um, a routine fast, biblically speaking, a routine fast is probably to go a day without food, but then to break your fast with the evening meal. Generally speaking, I understand it's, um, it's advisable to drink plenty of water. And uh, my own advice uh, is that... Um, If you um, usually drink tea or coffee, continue to drink tea or coffee in order that your fasting is not made more difficult by a caffeine withdrawal headache. Lots of people fast for more extended durations, three days, 21 days, perhaps 40 days. Extended fasts can sometimes be total fasts, um, but they're not always total fasts. Uh, Many people might might pray and fast, say, for 40 days, but um, their fast will be a a vegetable-only diet, and they'll be fasting from meat, desserts, and treats. Um, I would uh, not encourage anyone to begin with an extended fast unless they've done a a lot of shorter fasts and have experience therein, so that you already kind of know Um, how your body and how your mind react to fasting. Um, And, uh, of course, don't fast, uh, except that you've sought your uh, doctor's advice, especially if you have uh, chronic health conditions or you're on prescription medications. Don't don't fast without talking to your doctor first. A couple of additional things to know. Uh, uh, Firstly, people who don't fast assume that people who do fast, fast in order to feel more holy and closer to God. I, when I fast, do not feel more holy or closer to God. I feel cranky. (laughs) When I fast, I feel lightheaded and tired. I simply have less mental, emotional, and physical energy. With respect to how I feel, I feel much better once I've had something to eat. Secondly... Uh, When you begin your fast, uh, understand that you get to make a decision about how long you will fast and what you will fast from and when you will break your fast and how you will break your fast. Uh, This is a useful thing to do so that you know what you're doing. But but don't labor under the idea that you've made some vow to God. You haven't unless you've made a vow to God, then you have. But otherwise, please know your fast is your fast and you're in authority over it. You can break it if you want to. You can extend it if you want to. It's your fast. Now, the Bible is concerned with fasting as a spiritual discipline, something that is good for us spiritually, something that helps us to grow up as God's children. But it's worth noting that fasting may be very good for us also in other ways too. Uh, We are just about to enter the church season of Lent, a traditional time, of fasting. 
During Lent, uh, people fast from all kinds of things, from, from television, chocolate, alcohol, um, uh, a Facebook, their train set, whatever it might be, uh, people fast from all kinds of things during Lent. And fasting occasionally from the things that give us great pleasure and comfort, things that otherwise we routinely rely on to cheer us up, whether that's chocolate or car magazines or Netflix, such fasts are widely regarded to be widely recognized as being character-forming. When we fast from such pleasures, um, such innocent pleasures, we show ourselves that actually we can survive without such things, and that in fact we can survive quite well without such things. And it builds in us self-control, which is the ability to say no, which is tremendously useful when it comes to those times when we have to say no in the face of not-so-innocent pleasures. And one last topic to mention, uh, technically not relevant to our discussion today, but something I find fascinating, so I beg leave uh, to mention the fact that fasting, uh, as in regular uh, restricted calorie intake, is probably extremely good for us physically. Uh, it seems to me that like most creatures, certainly like most large vertebrates, we are simply not designed to eat all the time. Left to our own devices, we tend to eat at least three meals a day, often much closer to six meals a day once you factor in Morning tea, afternoon tea, and late night supper. Seven if you include second breakfast. But regular fasting may dramatically decrease our chances of getting cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's, and dementia. The biological mechanism of this is described in a documentary that you can currently find on the SBS website, a documentary by Dr. Michael Mosley called Eat, fast and live longer. In that documentary, Dr. Mosley describes how when the body is fully fueled, it is building, building, building. Anabolic metabolism. But it's when the body is fasting that it goes into self-repair mode. It stops, looks at what it's done, and figures out if any mistakes have been made. Within cells, DNA gets examined and repaired. Uh, that's fabulously protective when it comes to cancer. In the brain, uh, there's new stimulation of neural growth and more connections are made. Um, uh, uh, possibly enormously significant in preventing dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, things are being looked at and are being repaired. To eat and not fast, Dr. Mosley says, is like owning a car and never getting it serviced. And I mean that as a deeply shocking illustration of the point. In that same documentary, Dr. Mosley comes to the conclusion that you can actually get all of the benefits of regular fasting by practicing something called the 5-2 diet, a diet wherein you eat normally for five days of the week, but for two days of the week you eat only 25% of your normal intake. Now, the word diet sometimes suggests weight loss. This diet is not about weight loss, and fasting is not about weight loss. 
It is about being healthier, probably healthier spiritually, emotionally, and physically, and that might include, that might include some weight loss. But with respect to all of these things, please don't make big changes without speaking to your doctor. And one last point I probably ought to make, and it's an important point, is that if you are not fully grown, uh, if you're not, say, 21 years of age, um, please do not fast without discussing it first fully with your parents uh, and, uh, and, uh, and obey whatever the decision they make. Uh, so, so don't, if you're young, do not fast without parental discussion and approval. Well, we've now completed another major section within Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, a section wherein uh, Jesus discusses the three pillars of Jewish religious practice, giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. And we have this, this discussion in order to secure us from, uh, from the danger of hypocrisy doing things for show. Next week, we continue to look at clear and present dangers to effective discipleship. And next week, we look not at hypocrisy, but at treasure. And the Lord be with you all.